on. Can't help you, brother. That's all I got. Is it good? All right. Nate, give me some people whose lo- names were changed when they met new God, and give it to me this way, their previous name and then their new name. Sue. Saul, Saul went to Paul. Okay. James. Okay, Abram to Abraham. Simon to Peter. That's my lesson tonight. Don't steal anything else, okay? Tim. Jacob to Israel. Someone else. Sarai to Sarah. Sarai to Sarah. Yes. Someone else. Are there any other ones? Yes. Just God. Yep, I know there are other ones that they changed. Someone else did the changing for them. Anyone else? I think you could call it maybe not a name, but a nickname. What did James and John's nickname become? Sons of Thunder, right? So God likes to do that. And the one we're going to focus on tonight, um, Simon to Peter. I look at that simple truth as really representative of what it means to become a disciple. Simon meets Jesus, and one of the first things he says to him in the opening chapter, 1, in verse 42 of John's gospel, you are Peter, you are Simon, but you shall be Peter, Petros, rock. And if you read John's gospel or any of the gospel versions, you'll know that he wasn't too much Peter going on uh, most of his life with Jesus and the ministry that they had before the resurrection. And really, a lot of what Peter became to deserve the name Rock was mostly after the resurrection. Um, It is a Jesus journey. It's true of anyone who's a disciple. And for Simon, it was kind of a rough road. Uh, I went through the Gospel of John, and I'm going to paraphrase. These aren't exact phrases. But he has a pattern in his life that whenever Jesus says something, Simon refuses to take Jesus at his word. In fact, I would say Jesus would say this and Peter would say the opposite or vice versa. Let me give you an example. John 13, 36 through 38, Jesus tells Peter, you cannot follow me now. And Peter says, Lord, why, I want to, I'm going to follow you now. Why can't I follow you now? He says to Jesus, actually Jesus says, Peter, you won't lay your life down for me. And Peter says, I will lay down my life. I'll go to prison and to death for you. You don't understand now what I'm doing when he was washing their feet in John 13. And Peter says, yes, I do, because I don't want you washing my feet. And Jesus says, well, you better, because if you don't, you have no part with me. And of course, he changes his mind. He says to Peter, you'll you'll deny me three times. I'll never deny you, Lord, never. I mean, it seems like at every court, you know, every major event, Jesus says one thing, Peter says another. In fact, interesting, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but I read all four accounts of Peter's denial. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say these words, that when the girls or the maidens in the court where he was warming his hands by the fire, different times servants come up to him, two of them were girls, and it says that Peter denied that he, he says, I don't know the man. 
That's the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke all have the same rendition. But when you come to John's gospel that we're in tonight, it's different. He doesn't say in, in his denial, I don't know the man. The question is changed. It says, were you not one of his disciples? And Peter says, no, I wasn't. I'm not one of his disciples. He denies not just knowing Jesus, but following him. He denied that he was a disciple. Now, it's interesting, and this is why I had you turn to chapter 18 of John. I want to show you something that really is startling because I want you to see perhaps how this applies to your life. In John chapter 18, in verses 1 through 21, there is, and this is a big word, you probably already know what it means, juxtaposition. You know what juxtaposition means? It means setting two things side by side in a contrasting way. So in these first 21 verses of John 18, you have two people on trial. Jesus is on trial, okay? And you can see there in chapter 18, and it says, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 18 and verse 17, it says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now, um, also at the same time, if you go up to verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. See those two verses? And also in verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now, see, what you have going on is kind of crazy. You got Jesus standing before the religious leaders, and they are questioning him. And you know what they're questioning him about? His disciples. John uses the word disciple, or in its plural form, disciples, more than any other gospel. He uses it 80 times. Because it's a manual, really, one way to look at John's gospel, it's a manual of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, the phrase, follow me, which is used numerous times all throughout the book, but it brackets the book. The first one is Philip, Jesus says, follow him in chapter 1, and the end is Peter, follow me. And everything in between, if you have the eyes to see, is about what it looks like to truly be a disciple of Jesus and follow him. So you have Jesus on one side of this contrast, and they're asking him about his disciples and what he taught them. And Jesus has said, hey, I taught them publicly. So if you ask somebody who heard, because a lot of people heard it, and Jesus is telling them how stellar his disciples are, and that he taught them, and they follow him. But at the same time, while Jesus is being questioned about his disciples, Peter is being questioned about being a disciple. Where Jesus is declaring about discipleship, people, Peter is denying it. And, and the idea that John wants you to get when you read the first 21 verses of, of John 18 is to say, hey, which one are you more like? See, are you like Jesus, who's all about discipleship and having disciples and teaching them and becoming one? Is that you? Or see, when it gets very difficult, are you more like Peter? Because they're both being questioned about disciple and discipleship. Jesus is declaring it, and Peter is denying it. See, what I want to show you tonight from Peter and then a few others that we're going to put on the end, and then I have a challenge for you. I hope you got a three-by-five card because we're going to take an Easter challenge tonight. 
What I want you to see from Peter's example, and I want to show you some things I think was going on in his mind and life and why he did what he did and what the end result was of it. And then I want to show you a couple other examples. But the main thought I want you to get tonight, if you're writing it down, is this. Is discipleship is demonstrated by deeds. That's the one line I want to give you tonight. Discipleship is demonstrated by deeds. So when you put the two things side by side, Jesus talking about discipleship, Peter denying it, here's what you find. Is that Peter was, for the longest time, he thought it was enough to prove his discipleship by the words that he said. At every stretch, Jesus, I'll follow you to prison to death. And he thought by just saying it was enough. And he would constantly, I love you. In fact, when you get to the shore passage in John 21, and Jesus comes to him and challenges him, says, Peter, do you love me? See, Peter just three times tells Jesus, I love you. You know I love you. And here's what Jesus won't let him do anymore. Say it to me only. Because it's not about your words. See, discipleship is truly demonstrated by deeds. And I want to show you what happened to Peter in his discipleship because it, ha- it can happen to any of us. He denied Jesus, watch, in word and in deed. In chapter 18, in verse 17 and 25, which I already showed you, when he was asked, are you one of his disciples, in his words, he said, no, I'm not. Now, I want to ask the question, why? Did he not, back in chapter 13, before any of this ever started, 13, 36 to 38, did he not say, Lord, I'll never deny you. I will follow you to prison and to death. You got to ask yourself the questions the Bible wants you to ask. The question is, what made the change? Why did he not stick to his promise? Why did he not follow Jesus to prison and to death? I'm going to show you, because it wasn't just a matter of words. It was a matter of deeds. A few verses earlier, look in John 18. Here's what it says. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name is Malchus. He was going for something grander than that, I can assure you. His head, he misses The guy moves, he cuts his ear off. Now, what do you think Peter is expecting Jesus to say? Yes, good job. Didn't he a few verses earlier say, Peter said, should I bring two swords? And he says, it is enough. Another time that he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. So he chops the guy's ear off, going from his head. He's protecting his master. He is the number one disciple of his rabbi. And he's not going to let anybody do anything to Jesus. Why? Because, listen, he has an idea in his mind about what the Messiah is like. Tell me from that verse Peter's view of what Jesus should be. What kind of Messiah should he be? What? Yeah. Yes, he's a Rome-conquering Messiah. Was he? No. What kind of conquering Messiah was he? Not a Rome-conquering, but a, yes, a sin-conquering one. And Jesus says to Peter, 
after that valiant, risky, dangerous, courageous move with the sword, so he thought, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What did Peter learn from Jesus' statement? Is Jesus going to defend himself? Are they going to overthrow the Romans? No. Is Jesus going to die? Yes. Yes, he is. I don't think that after that statement from Jesus, that event in the garden, that when he gets to the courtyard, although the Bible says, follow this passage, it says, and he followed Jesus from a distance. He's still following. Huge question marks. Huge. By the time he warms himself by the fire, and a little bit of time takes place after that event, and Jesus told him, there aren't going to be any swords in this. I don't know that Peter thought that he could be a disciple anymore because Jesus' ways of the kingdom were not Peter's ways of the kingdom. And didn't Peter already have this a little embedded in him? Remember in Matthew 16 what Peter said? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this unto you, but my father is in heaven. And it's not even a few verses later in the same context Jesus, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to flog me and they're going to beat me and on the third day, they're going to, I mean, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says what to Jesus? That'll never, ume, double negative, that will never, ever happen to you. And Jesus says another wonderful thing to Peter's ears. I'm sure he loved this one too. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> How would you like that? You're sticking up for Jesus and he calls you Satan. That probably wasn't his best day. And neither was the garden event. But he hadn't changed his mind yet. He still thinks that Jesus is going to be a Rome conquering instead of a sin conquering Messiah. Now let me ask you tonight. One of the things that I find about people who fall away from following Jesus and stop being the disciple that they once were was because they have expectations of who Jesus is and therefore what he should be like and what he should do in their lives, and it doesn't happen. Let me ask you, what are some ways, generic ways, that we would struggle today, anybody in our 21st century culture, what are some things that people expect Jesus to be like and expect him to do if he is who he says he is? But sometimes they get disillusioned because it doesn't happen that way. What do you think are some things that would happen along those lines that would be modern for us? Okay, say it again. Okay, prosperity gospel. So they expect Jesus to bless them, right? They do all the right things. They obey him. They keep his word, right? They claim things or whatever they do in his name, and he doesn't bless them like he thought. In fact, they have financial trouble, and they aren't prospering like they thought. And they get disillusioned. What else? What are some other issues? Jane? That we shouldn't suffer. That has to be one of the most popular ones, I think. That, you know, if you follow Jesus and you're doing the right thing, then you can't imagine why he isn't blessing you. Maybe not financially, but why am I not getting a spouse? Why did I not have a child? Why did I not get that promotion? Why do I get the diagnosis of cancer? Why, why, why? And we keep asking questions because we still struggle with that. We still struggle with that. See, for Peter, he expected Jesus to be Messiah with a crown of jewels, not a crown of thorns. He wanted Jesus to have a physical sword, not just a spiritual one, the word of God, right? 
He wanted Jesus to conquer things and change things. Let me, let me fast and make this a little bit more focused, and you can keep going with me. Peter had a Messiah mentality that said, here's what Jesus ought to do. He ought to be more interested in changing the externals in my life than the internals, i.e., he should be get more concerned about giving me money. He should be more concerned about my physical health. He should be more concerned about my promotion. He should be more concerned about my marriage and how my kids turn out. See, he should be more concerned. Here's what we believe, Peter did. He should be more concerned about the external things than the internal things. And I don't want God, and we would never say this out loud, I don't want him to be too concerned about my character or my morality or my principles that I live by or what my priorities are, but I really want him to make my life on the outside what it ought to be. We struggle, don't we? We struggle. Because we want Jesus to be something. So when Peter cut off Malchus's ear, I don't think he thought with Jesus' response to that that he could be a, a disciple anymore because their ways were so different. I think personally, and this is only my opinion, if you read scripture, Judas was the same way. I think, yes, Judas betrayed Jesus, and there was a money element. There's no two ways about it. The Bible's very explicit about it, that especially when Mary gave the money, you know, poured out the ointment on Jesus, and he said this could have been a year's wages, and he could have given it to the poor, and it says he didn't really care about the poor, but he took money out of the money bag because he was the treasurer and did what he wanted with it, right? So he has a money thing, right? But why? It has to be more than money with Judas. You know why? 30 pieces of silver is nothing. That's the price of a slave. Now that fulfills prophecy out of Zechariah. So I get it revelatory wise why it happened that way. But I can tell you this. It wasn't just for money. 30 pieces of silver didn't go very far. And he could have got way more, way more to betray Jesus. I think, in my opinion... If you read Matthew 26 in the first few verses and other places, I think Judas had the same delusion that Peter did. Now the only difference between the two is that Peter was prayed for by Jesus and predicted his return in repentance. That wasn't true for Judas. But I think Judas wanted Jesus to be pushed into a corner where he had to respond. And when they took him and he betrayed him and he didn't do anything, this is why I think he goes out and hangs himself. This is why, by the way, it couldn't have been about money because he took the money and gave it back. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. In other words, Jesus isn't going to act. He's not going to defend himself. He's not going to raise an army. He's not going to fight back. And I betrayed him, and now he's going to die. He couldn't, literally could not live with that thought and killed himself. Thankfully, Peter responded differently. But I think the mentality in both situations are the same. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to the end of the gospel, John chapter 21. John 21 and verse 15. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but you're familiar with this text, and Jesus meets Peter on the shore. And in verse 15, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, now this is what Jesus calls him. Remember our first conversation tonight. It was, God changes people's names when he transforms their lives 
and their new name represents what they are going to be. All you have to do is read Revelation in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in each one of those two churches. When you get to heaven and God changes, and you get to heaven, Jesus says, and I will write a new name on them. God's got a new name. I, I'm, <coughs> I'm excited to see what mine's going to be. I'm a little tired of William or Lance. And so I'm thinking I got a new one coming, and I hope it's way better than the one I got. No offense to my mom and dad. But we all have a new name. Now, now look at the text. Jesus says to him, this is after the resurrection, after his denial, Simon, son of John. Now, what would he want to be called? Peter. Why? Because Jesus changed his name to that. That's what Peter is the one he's going to be. He spent three years with Jesus. He's supposed to be the rock. And over these last few days, he's proven to be anything but the rock. Do you feel like that sometime as a disciple? Here's what Jesus told me I'm going to be. Here's what I should be doing. And the last few weeks or days, you might say, I've been anything but that kind of person. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, that's the problem, isn't it? Do you love me more than these? And I think he means the other disciples because there are a number of them with them. And I think he said, remember what Peter said? Read all the versions each time you read the Bible. Peter not only said, Lord, I'll go with you to prison and to death, but in another version of the, of the gospel, he says this, Lord, all of these, the other disciples, all of these might deny you, but I never will. In other words, hey, these guys are second compared to me. I will never deny you. So Jesus comes back, and by the way, it doesn't say in any of the versions when he denied Jesus that any of the other disciples were there to see it or hear it other than perhaps John maybe. So none of the other disciples, unless he went around telling them, which I doubt he would be, he'd be pretty ashamed of that. I doubt he did. But none of them know why in the world that morning Jesus would ask him three times. Peter knows. So he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And here's what Peter does. He's still holding on and counting on the fact that Jesus will be okay, that my love and discipleship and following him is proved just by my words. And so he says to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Second time, son of Jonah. Third time, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he gets it. And by the end of it, here's what he really gets. Ready? Jesus says to Peter's response, I love you, Lord. In fact, Peter says, and he's distressed, Lord, you know I love you. And here's what Jesus says every single time. Do an action. Feed my lambs. Have you ever noticed that? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Why? Because discipleship is demonstrated by deeds. Can I tell you tonight? You are the measure of you and your following of Jesus is not what you say, it's what you do. Every rabbi who had disciples would teach them two things to know everything they know, and to do everything they did. And you would not be considered a disciple if you only know what the master knows. Judas, he knew what the master knew. He did not do what the master did. Tonight, that's the measure of your discipleship. I have decided to follow Jesus 
No turning back. You know what that means? That I will live differently. Not that I will just verbalize my faithfulness, not that I will just emphasize it or say it at church or to others, but I will do something. Now here's the crazy conclusion. The conclusion is that as he tells him three times, feed my lambs, he says to him, and I want you to know one other thing. He says, I want you to follow me, and then he says, here's the action, feed my lambs, follow me, all action things, and then he tells him another prediction. And he says, I want you to know that when you are old, people are going to take you where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch out your hands. And it says, the Bible says, and this was signified or signified that this is the kind of death that he would die. Peter must think at one point that Jesus being a little too hard on him. And so he turns the tables and asks, hey, what about John? What about him? And Jesus says, if he abides until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. You know the difference between the two of them? Why doesn't Jesus say something to John? Because John and his discipleship is the only one that we know of that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He was the only one there. Peter never had. And you know what Jesus is telling him? Peter, I want you to know how important demonstrating your discipleship by deeds is. You know the promise you made me that you would lay down your life for me? Well, guess what? You're going to do it. Because someday they're going to carry you and stretch out your arms. And history tells us that Peter was crucified, and some even say upside down, because he wasn't worthy to be crucified right side up like his master. And there was a day that it was coming that he would do exactly what he said. But see, it was a journey. It was a Jesus journey. And he had denied Jesus. He had said things that weren't true. He had the wrong idea about him. And he came to the place, and let me tell you this, it wasn't until the resurrection and that Peter got the Holy Spirit that he was actually powered, empowered enough to actually be a disciple and do what Jesus did. And actually fulfill the promises that he made to Jesus that I would follow you to prison and death. And ultimately he does. But it's a journey. It's a road that he takes. But it's a road that he had to learn was only accomplished when the deeds and the words went together. Now, unless you think that that's the only person in John's gospel that's true, can I tell you two other ones? And then I'm going to give you the challenge. There is a person before Jesus' death and there's another person after his death that by their deeds prove exactly what they thought of Jesus and that they wanted to be his disciple. In chapter 12, in verses 1 through 3 and following, Mary, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Jesus is at their home. He's at Bethany. It's a very short time before he's going to go to Jerusalem for the last time. And they're having a meal together because Lazarus has been raised from the dead and I think they're celebrating Mary comes in, who is the one in Luke 10, 38 through 42, was found at Jesus' feet. By the way, that's the position of a disciple. Martha was out in the kitchen, King James, cumbered about with much service, <laughs> right? Not Mary, she's sitting at his feet because that's the position of every student or disciple of a rabbi. Mary comes to Jesus in John 12, and she takes out an oil a spikenard of nard, pure nard. And the Bible says, if you look in chapter 12 and verse 3 of John, it was one pound. One pound, which is not really a pound in our day, it's about three quarters of a pound. But it was usually worn around your neck 
in a flask uh, because it was incredibly valuable. The average day worker salary for an entire year was what that little jar was worth. That was a lot of money to a lot of people. She breaks off what would be the flask or the top of it, and immediately it is so powerful and strong, the Bible says that it fills the whole room in the house. Now, again, you have the contrast going on. Remember I told you Jesus and Peter? You got another contrast, another juxtaposition, because you got Jesus, you got Judas, and Judas, he takes exception to that. And here's why. Because he's a liar, and he's a stealer. And he pretends that he would rather have her not do that. Why wasn't the, it given to the poor? He's trying to act like he's philanthropic or something or some charitable-minded guy. But really, he steals out of the treasury. That's why he wanted it not to be done this way. But this woman, Jesus says, leave her alone. Now, do you remember why Jesus said leave her alone? She has done this what? For my burial, right? How in the world does Mary know that? None of the disciples got any of the death crucifixion talk. She does. In fact, the Bible says that she's kept it for that, meaning this isn't a new thought. This is a planned thought. This is something that she planned to do for Jesus, knowing that why he's going to Jerusalem this time. I don't think she understands it all, but I think she knows what he's doing because she's kept it for his burial, not way down the road somewhere 30 years whether she doesn't know she's going to be there for. No, this one, because she knows he's going to die. A pound. We would say today thousands and thousands of dollars that would be worth. That's before Jesus' burial. You know why she does it? Because that's what disciples do. She wants everybody to know, including Judas, this is how much Jesus is worth to me. He's worth my life savings. Can I tell you about kings? Kings are buried with royal burials. If you read all the descriptions in ancient times, one of the things that kings were buried with is much and many, many spices. You remember when Lazarus died Mary and Martha said, Lord, don't open the tomb because by now he stinks. Four days later, they didn't embalm. So he was decomposing and he smelled bad and it was a social shame. And in a shame and honor culture, that was awful social standing for the family. Nobody wanted to smell the decaying corpse. It was awful. It was embarrassing for Jesus to open that, right? And here she is giving Jesus one pound of pure nard for his royal burial, However, that's not enough. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus get together after Jesus' death. And although the, all the disciples had abandoned Jesus, they did not. Now remember, these are religious leaders. They were a minority in a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, that, the ones that had Jesus put to death. They're the ones who stood up, and Nicodemus in particular, who said, do we always... Do we, have a man become guilty before he's tried? And they shut him right down. There's no prophet from Galilee. That was the answer in John 7. But it didn't stop him. You know why? Because Joseph of Arimathea, it says, was a disciple, but secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. And I believe that also incurred with Nicodemus. He has a pattern through John. He saw Jesus at night. He stands up for him. And now it says that he goes, Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks publicly, publicly, 
to Pilate for Jesus' body. It wasn't a secret meeting. It was public. Now he is willing to identify with Jesus publicly and to let known that he's a follower. They get his body off the cross, take it down because they have to bury it before it's 6 o'clock because Passover's coming. The Bible says that Nicodemus is there and Nicodemus takes very similar spices that Mary took. Now watch the comparison. In John chapter 19 and verses 38 through 42, it says that Nicodemus brought not one pound, 75 pounds of spice. 75 pounds. Why in the world would he do it? Because Jesus was his king. And that's how you bury kings. 75, listen to this, that's 75 years of wages for the average person. 75 years. First thing we know is Nicodemus was loaded. But what we really know about him is that he loved Jesus and he was discipleship and he was following him. Listen, how do I know? Because you know what John's gospel teaches us? It's not the words that make disciples. It's the deeds. See, Mary was a disciple. Although she never said disciple things, she showed it. She said, let me show you how worth Jesus is, how much he's worth to me. Let me show you what I can demonstrate, my love for him. Here's my one pound. She's a woman. The man, the religious leader, you got the average Mary woman, lower in society. You got Nicodemus, Joseph up here, higher in society, powerful influence. But they do the same thing. And because they're more... They're more wealthy, they do it even more for Jesus. But the message in both of them is absolutely clear, is it not? You know what Easter was for them? Jesus, you died. I know who you are. I don't understand it all yet, but I believe that you're king, and I want everybody to know it. And I'm not afraid to ask for your body. I'm not afraid to publicly bury you, and I'm not afraid to lavish things on you, even though you're dead. Can I tell you, that's discipleship. Discipleship is demonstrated by deeds. You have a three-by-five card in your hand. If you have a pen to write with, if not, you can think about it in your mind and do it tonight. Let us demonstrate our discipleship this Easter. You want to? Let's do that together. Let's be like Peter after the resurrection, let's put our discipleship into action. Let's be like Mary, and maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you're a one-pound person. Some of us have the resources to be a Joseph or a Nicodemus, and we have 75 pounds, but it really isn't the amount at all because the widow had four mites, right? two mites, right? Jesus said she put in more than everybody else. So Jesus isn't looking for an amount per se, but you know what he's looking for? That we show him what he is worth to us. That we lavish him with our love. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called the children of God. Amazing. Let's lavish Jesus with our discipleship love. Let's not just talk this Easter about how much we appreciate he died for us. 
Let's not just talk about how awesome it is that when we die, we're going to go to heaven and that he rose from the grave and that we're justified and we're righteous and we're sanctified. Those are great things. But let us, as John said in his epistle, 1 John 3, which he got the message because he wrote the gospel, right? He says, brethren, let us not love what? In word or in what? Yes, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. Let's do that. Would you take the last couple minutes tonight before we close in prayer and conspire with your spouse or with your entire family or two or three other families or with your entire small group, however you choose to. Pray about it, think about it, write it down, conspire together. How will I demonstrate discipleship this Easter to show Jesus by my deeds that I love him and he's worth everything to me? And I want to do it this year. Not just say it, not just pray it, not just sing it, do it. Would you consider that? I don't know what it would be, but I would love to, when Easter is over, on a Wednesday night, to have you come back and we can tell some discipleship stories about what you did and what you plan to do with others and how, and see, by the way, doing something for God most often in the Bible is what you do for others. We love God and others, but we also love God by loving others. Maybe that's how your discipleship will be demonstrated, but let's do it. You think about it. If you want to write down a couple, jot down a little couple ideas that maybe just popped into your mind tonight on this card, but I'm sure before it's done, you'll give it thir- further thought and prayer Uh, with the people that you want to be involved to do it. And God willing, we can make a difference in what we do to prove and demonstrate our discipleship this Easter. Let's close in prayer. Would you pray quietly with your head bowed and eyes closed tonight? In your heart of hearts, would you say, I want to commit tonight, and I'm not sure everyone and whoever perhaps might be involved in this in the end, but I want to demonstrate my discipleship to you, Lord. I want to demonstrate my value of your infinite worth. I want to lavish love on you this Christmas. I may be a one-pounder or a 75-pounder or something in between, but you're worth it. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Not just in word only, but in deed and truth. Father, Too often, our discipleship has been demonstrated by only our words. How good it is to tell you how much we love you. How good it is to sing songs that praise you. Even to speak your words. But they are empty, void, banal, unless they have content unless they have deeds. Let us be doers of discipleship. This Easter, I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice might take this challenge, that we might have stories that make much of you and the things that we did out of great love for you, the love that you first put in our hearts, that we might demonstrate the realities of Easter, not only what we preach, but what we practice, 
Father, I pray that you will help us to conspire with your Holy Spirit what we can do to lavish our love on Jesus because he's worthy. Thank you. Help us to glorify you in all these things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.